Hamelech Basadeh, the king is in the field. As Chodesh Elo is upon us, we are back with our Word of the Month series, where we choose a word and we ask our guests to share three inspiring ideas of Torah that connect with a specific theme or time of year connected to that word. As we are going through Elo, leading up to the Amim Noraim, we have partnered up with some of our previous guests and given them a word to explore. As we speak to Rav Mordechai Berg, let's find out what word we have challenged him with, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Rav Berg, for coming on today. It's great to have you on again. So we've challenged you by giving you a word. This word we have asked you to use as a springboard towards sharing Torah for Elul, three pieces of Torah which connect to Elul, and the word we have given you to use is the word Teshuvah. So are you ready to go into your first idea with the word Teshuvah? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's it's wonderful to be back, and you should be blessed with the continued success in this holy endeavor of sharing Desert Island Torah. Chazal tell us that the month of Elul comes from Ani Dodi Vadodi Li. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. One of the interesting things about speaking uh, about Elul in a loving way is we tend not to think about judgment as love. One of the things you'll hear from teenagers very often is, you're judging me, stop judging me. And it's hard for us to imagine that judgment could be love. We can understand judgment as fear. We all have wrongdoings. We all have misdeeds. The imagery of a courtroom, of us standing behind the defendant's table with our iniquities being gazed upon by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is certainly not a pleasant one. And so the question is, how could this possibly be framed as an act of love? One of my favorite ideas that I heard many years ago is that we are afraid of being judged by people who don't know us and by people who don't care about us. And so in context, we are all understandable. We all make sense. Uh, for example, a child who is acting out is playing a game of charades. The child does not have the emotional language necessary to articulate what's actually happening for him. And so as a result of his inability to express himself in words, a child will express themselves in actions. And they'll throw a temper tantrum and they'll start beating the floor and start throwing things. To judge someone on a superficial level, on an external level, means to look at them and to say, I see you banging your fists. I see you throwing that temper tantrum. And that's very uncomfortable for us because we know in our hearts that that's not what's happening. We know that we're experiencing a tremendous level of pain and frustration, and loneliness, a lack of belonging in our lives. And so intuitively, when someone tells us you're misbehaving in a judgmental fashion, we we repel from them. We don't want to be near them because they're not looking at us authentically. They're not looking at us deeply. They don't know the full picture. Imagine if somebody were able to see us for who we truly are. And that meant that they knew every single moment of our lives every inner thought that we have, all of our feelings, every interaction we've ever had, and the thoughts and feelings of those we've interacted with. 
Imagine if that being knew our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and all of the intergenerational trauma that went into the creation of who we are. So when they looked at that particular behavior, when that person, that being, looks at that individual Avera, they see it for what it truly is, which is a deep expression of our pain. And what that means is that we are being gazed upon lovingly. It's compassionate by its very definition, because how could somebody see us, if they're truly seeing us, as anything other than beautiful? And so we repel from being judged, because when people judge, they judge the action. And even if they're um, even if they're wonderful, beautiful people, even if they're people who have unconditional positive regard, they don't truly know us. And the truth is, we don't even truly know ourselves. So we are often our own worst judges. We're our, we're our own worst critiques because we're like, oh, you're bad. You did this bad thing. But the more that we become curious observers of self, the more that we move inwards, the more that we gain a deeper and more profound appreciation for who we are, the more forgiving we can be towards ourselves. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu judges us, it's a courtroom. I don't want to shalom take away from the gravity of Elul. But when we say the judge is our father, that's not a cliche. That's, that's a deep understanding of the nature of the judgment that we are experiencing. This is not a judgment in order to be told that you're bad. This is a judgment that's designed in order to repair. But a judgment that's designed in order to repair can only be a compassionate judgment. For example, if you have a husband and wife, and they have, a, they have a split between them, there's a fight, there's a disagreement, they've moved to their separate corners. As long as each one of them is standing in a posture of, you're bad, what you did was wrong, there can be no repair. Repair requires compassion. It requires seeing the other person for the beautiful person that they are. And so if a husband will look upon his wife and say, I love you, you're amazing. This is an area where we don't see eye to eye. This is an area where we haven't been our best selves. Then repair becomes possible. But as long as we're only seeing the action, or even if we're seeing a little bit deeper than the action, we're only seeing that much deeper. We're not able to see the complex entirety of a human being. There can be no repair. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to be in a relationship with us. I am to my beloved as my beloved is to me. This is, in its fundamental nature, a loving relationship between man and God. And that requires compassion and forgiveness. And so part of that process is judgment. That's not something we should be shying away from. I almost imagine it in my head as like a man standing in a field and the sun is shining on him. And it's bright and it's uncomfortable for his eyes, and it's hot, but it's also warm. And he's basking in that just beautiful sunshine, and there's something like very healing about sitting in the sun and allowing it to bask on you. And that's perhaps one of the attitudes that we must have in addition to this awesome moment. But we can stand in the field and allow HaKadosh Baruch Hu to gaze upon us with his love, with his desire for repair, and we should be zokha to... To feel, to feel that beautiful judgment that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is sharing with us as we return to him. Absolutely. Um, I think 
Teshuvah is, Rav Lechenstein says, it's an opportunity. Um, and I think the opportunity to, you know, build our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, and, you know, find that spiritual potential. Amazing. So should we go into your second idea? Yeah, and I want to show something very special about my second item. Um, it's not my own thought, and it's actually something that I read, I believe it was yesterday, it might have been two days ago. Um, I saw online this post from Rabbi Bernath, who I, I think he's a rabbi in Montreal, and he wrote this wonderful post, and I, I said, this is just so superb. And then when you asked me to do this three things on Chuva, I said, you know, this post is really about Chuva. So I'd like to share with you, I'm going to read, uh, if you don't mind, this, this short post that he wrote and then maybe expound a little bit on it. But it's really quite funny. And uh, while I've never met Rabbi Bernath, I, I hope to one day meet him because um, the sentiment that he shared is just so absolutely beautiful and clearly indicative of the, of the person that he is. So he wrote as follows. Love is not just the sunlit moments shared over candlelit dinners or laughter. It is also in the silent gaps, the misunderstandings, the ruptures, the hesitations. These challenging moments, soaked in pain, often hold the seeds of our most transformative lessons. Think of a time when you felt disconnected from a loved one. That space, as painful as it may have been, also bore the potential for reflection and growth. Perhaps it was a nudge to, to embrace vulnerability or to cultivate empathy. In the embrace of such lessons, our connections deepen and transform, becoming even more authentic and resilient. Consider the love story of Jacob and Rachel, Yaakov and Rachel. Their journey to union wasn't straightforward. It was laden with obstacles and longings. Yet through every challenge, they evolved, adapting and growing, their bond becoming an emblem of enduring love. Relationships in their essence are like gardens. They require tending, patience, and care. The occasional storm, though harsh, nourishes the soil, allowing new blossoms to emerge with even more vibrancy. So as we journey together through life's ebbs and flows, may we remember to treasure every lesson, to hold close every moment of growth, and to cherish the ever-deepening love that emerges from the dance of pain and understanding. It, it's just this beautiful, Beautiful. I don't know if it's a poem or just a, a sh I don't know what to call it. It's just absolutely stunning. What I love about it is that Rabbi Bernath is engaging the space of pain and finding the light within that darkness and the sweetness within that which is very bitter. We have all had moments this year that we are not proud of. We have all done things that are beneath our truest self. If we fail to hold space for those parts of ourselves that didn't behave according to our highest values, we are losing out on some exceptional gifts. For example, if we can't engage our Averos, then we can't find our longing for Hashem. So in our distance, we can also find what we truly want which is to have a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And so it's uncomfortable to sit in the space of, I haven't done my very best. But if we can sit in that space, we will find within that space the longing to do our very best and to return to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If we have access to 
the pain that we've caused in this world, then we can also have access to new ways of being for ourselves. Because in that space of, I'm not really proud of the way that I behaved, we can also discover a way that we would be proud of behaving. We could say, I would like more to be my highest self or to be a little bit more oriented towards becoming that highest self. And so growth happens from within that rupture. Our relationship with Hashem is meant to evolve, but it can only evolve if we allow ourselves to examine the lower parts of our relationship with Hashem. Can we invite Hashem into the space where we say, I, I spoke Lashon Hara, I didn't daven with Kavana, or whatever others fill in the blank. We all have our own unique others. But in that space, we can say, this is not the relationship that I have with Hashem. So many young men and women today are saying, for example, I really don't like davening. I don't connect to davening. And that's that's such an awesome thing that they're saying, because what you can hear if you're paying careful attention is the longing to have a relationship with Hashem where davening is meaningful. A, a way of being within ourselves where we can connect to davening. A, a relationship with Hashem where there's a healthy level of communication. So all of these amazing gifts come from this awareness and understanding of our own imperfections. And so this journey, as Rabbi Bernath writes, it isn't straightforward. There's obstacles and there's longings and there's challenges and there's evolutions and there's adaptations and there's growth. But ultimately what that yields is a healthier, more vibrant relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, one where there's a, a certain dynamic feeling. It's alive. It's not, it's, it's not just something that we do, a box that we check off, but it's, it's something that we are, and it's something that we're moving towards, and it becomes the center of our world. The pain is the growth. These are not two separate movements. It's not like... Well, I was in pain, so now I have to do something differently. The pain is what yields the growth. It's part and parcel of the process. And the ebbs and flows of life, they're, they're, not, they're not a bug, they're a feature. And so Shuva is engaging our lowest moments and watching that seed crack open from that destruction to blossom into the beautiful person that we truly are. Absolutely, I think. For all of us, like there's going to be a gap. Some of us, it's going to be bigger. Some of us, it'll be smaller. Um, and it's kind of like I think Rob Lichtenstein speaks about how, how like Baltashket obviously is like you know wasting property, whereas in Teshuva terms, it's actually like kind of similar in that we have a gap and there's like a waste of human potential. Um, and our our goal is kind of to fix that um, and kind of like recognize the fact that we were created for Salam Alakim and that is like the relationship that we can fulfill. Yeah, very beautiful. Thank you for sharing. The final piece that I'd like to share is one of the obstacles to tshuva is our conflating of the terms shame and guilt. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown um, defines the difference between shame and guilt. She says, Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. And the definition of shame that she shares is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed, 
and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, something we've experienced, done, or failed to do, makes us unworthy of connection. One of the challenges that we have today is it's hard for us to admit that we've done an Avera if that means that I am bad. And it's like a child, when a child gets a, a 70 on a test, the child thinks I am a 70, not I got a 70. And so naturally that child will you know, want to hide that test from their parents because nobody wants to be bad. Nobody wants to be a 70. But they're not a 70. They just got a 70 on that test. It's the same thing when it comes to our Averos. We have to understand that God, the soul that you gave me is always pure. There is nothing that we can do that will impact the essential purity of the soul. It's not possible. The soul is a piece of God. A piece of God cannot be tarnished. There can be external coverings of debris that we're not particularly proud of, but a diamond in the mud is still a diamond. And so when it comes to Menashe Melch Yisrael, Menashe for 55 years was engaged in some of the most depraved activities that a person could be involved in, uh, brought a tremendous amount of sinning to Klal Yisrael, idolatry to Klal Yisrael, and so on and so forth. And Chazal tell us that for Menashe Melch Yisrael to do tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to literally dig under the Kisei HaKavod to create a path for Menashe. And it took three years for Menashe to do tshuva. I saw this amazing explanation from Rav Zaychik, who explained that what does it mean that HaKadosh Baruch Hu dug under the Kisei HaKavod? What does it mean that he created a pathway under the throne of glory? What it means to say is that he dug into Menashe. And he dug out a space that went into the Kisei HaKavod of Menashe, meaning even after 55 years of an absolute tragic life, Menashe remained good. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu dug that path so that he could find his essential goodness. And when a person holds on to that strand of essential goodness, that becomes the rope through which they're able to pull themselves out of the pit. And it takes time. It's, it can be a long process, a painful process, an arduous process. 55 years um, cannot be washed away in a single moment, generally speaking, uh, with exceptions. But generally speaking, it takes time and effort in order to create real and lasting change. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Menashe the gift of knowing that even after 55 years, he remained good. And when people hear this, especially when you speak to teens about this, their reaction is, Rebbe, there's no way that's true. In 55 years, I mean, he did terrible things, and there was terrible impact, and there's no doubt that that's true. Judaism has a radical belief when it comes to tshuva. You can always do tshuva. So even though there are mamari chazal that seem to indicate there are certain others that you can't do tshuva for, the Alter Rebbe explains that that means a tshuva that is an ordinary tshuva, won't suffice. But a tshuva me'ava, a tshuva of love, a tshuva that is born of a deep yearning, and almost desperate, who is more powerful than an ordinary tshuva. And so a person is always able to come back and is always able to do tshuva. And that means that a person is always forgivable. This is radical because we don't believe it about ourselves. Because we believe that we are not good. And we believe that we are not forgivable. And that is a deep place of shame. 
And a person cannot create relationships from a place of shame. Relationships begin with the fundamental belief that I am worthy of love and connection and belonging. And you believe that you are worthy of love and connection and belonging. And two people who are worthy of love and connection and belonging can love and connect and belong to each other. But as long as one of us or both of us feel that we are defined by our worst moments, there is no space for us to connect with each other. That's why in relationships, it's so very painful to be seen in such a negative way. Because when you see me in an unforgiving way, it taps into the toxic shame that I already have about myself, which tells me that I'm unforgivable and unworthy of love and connection or belonging. And that's true in human relationships, and that's true in our relationships with HaKadosh Baruch Hu as well. We cannot enter into a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu if we do not know that we are loved. Shuva is not designed to earn Hashem's love. He already loves us. We are already forgivable. Now we can ask for forgiveness. It's a much healthier approach to tshuva. It's a much more organic approach to tshuva. It's, I'm not defined by my lowest moments. I'm a good person who did something that was beneath my dignity. And so seen from that lens, tshuva is actually something that restores dignity because I'm coming in contact with my highest self, my truest self, my most godly self. And that allows me to leave behind behaviors that don't align themselves with my dignity. And that's a very freeing thing. It allows us to be vulnerable in our relationship with Hashem. It allows us to be imperfect. It allows us to be in process and to be moving towards a state of wholeness. There's no longer this pressure of, I have to do everything perfectly. It now comes from this deeper sense of desire to connect and appreciating that that journey may take time and that that journey will certainly take effort but that journey can be messy and also beautiful and so we need to do much more of this we need to reframe for ourselves for our communities for our students for our children the idea that elul is a loving time where a loving judge gazes upon you that elul is a time where Seeds will be born from the destruction of that which we have done, from our lowest moments, and that ultimately our lowest moments don't define us. Our lowest moments are an expression of a particular time and place in our lives, but our essential goodness remains pure and always will remain pure, and we should be zocha to come back to that state of purity and to feel the innocence that comes along with tapping into our most essential self. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that Hashem loves us unconditionally. Um, we say on Yom Kippur, we are your people and you are our God. Um, and it's important to remember that Hashem loves us unconditionally, even if we slip up on things, um, because ultimately we made a covenant and it's an important um, message to remember. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for coming on today and sharing such inspiring words of Torah with us. Thank you for having me, and uh, we should be blessed to stand in the courtroom together for many years to come and enjoy this beautiful process of tshuva. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. 
And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Horror, get in touch at desertislandhorror at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.